Avengers, assemble. In the wake of Endgame, some were lost, others regained. They're good. What happens next? Stay tuned, true believers, as we try to find out. Peter Melnick. Graphic designer, comic book enthusiast, and podcast pontificator. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Upstate New York radio announcer in the Sullivan Catskills with an inordinate amount of catching up in his own comic book universe. Ready? It's time for a new episode of The Marvelists. Welcome, everyone, to The Marvelists, the Marvel Universe podcast. I'm Peter Melnick. And I'm Eddie Wilson. And before we get into the usual rigmarole of introducing our guest co-host and also introducing our special guest interview subjects, we want to tell y'all at home how you can get a hold of us on social media. You do? Mm-hmm. Do it. Go on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at... The Marvelists. Give myself a follow on Twitter, at... Peter Melnick and also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Peter Melnick Podcaster. You can also find Eddie on Instagram at Eddie9193. You can also find myself on Instagram at Peter Melnick, yada, yada, yada. Not yada, 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 but though it would be a really long Twitter handle. Then, yada cubed. No, that doesn't make sense. Mm. When you cube it, it doesn't multiply out correctly. Anyway, it's a math thing. And I'm challenged in that department. Me too. But anyway... People also listen to us on a wide variety of streaming platforms, including TuneIn Radio, Stitcher Radio, Podbean, Spotify, Podomatic, maybe. I don't know. That that one was a garbage platform. That's a throwback. Yeah, it's more for uh, the old days. Beginning. Yeah, before before we were doing this this here fine show. But you can find us on all those. And most importantly, go on WolverinePodcast.com and use the promo code at checkout. Marvelists. And get one free month of Stitcher Premium. And when you do, you can listen to a ton of audio content, including Wolverine the Long Night and Wolverine. The Lost Trail. Their first ever foray s- into. Are we, are we doing like tandem for this? <laughs> Set you up. Go ahead. All right. For, their first ever foray into serialized podcasting, telling a consecutive story. So. The Long Night and then The Lost Trail. Lost Trail is the new season of the series, and we recommend checking that out because it's written by a comic book writer, too, no less, people. So, yeah. How many people have you referenced already? Many. Yeah, apparently. Games people play. Oof, okay. You take them or you leave them. There's two versions of that. At least the same title. The one you want is The Alan Parsons Project. Which I believe is a type of hovercraft. The other is... The spinners. Ooh, good catch. So anyway, WolverinePodcast.com and use the promo code at checkout. Marvelists. And get one free month of Stitcher Premium. And after that one free month is over, it is only 499 pennies. That's a strange currency. It was something you referenced earlier before the microphone went on. That that is true. That is very true. But $4.99 a month and you can cancel at any time. So you can even cancel while you're subscribed during that first month. You're like, "I I don't want this anymore. Okay. But we think you should stay because there's a lot of audio content, including our stuff on there. Oh, yeah. And other things like Smodcast, Mark Maron, yada, yada, yada. All the yadas. The yadas. All right. Anyway. So this episode, people, is our X-Men, the animated series episode. And as a part of X-Month, we were able and fortunate enough to be joined by Eric and Julia Leewald of X-Men the Animated Series. They are the ones who are the architects of the series and were very much responsible for what we got to see on screen during the 1990s. Oh, yeah. So, before we get into that interview, we're also joined with a returning co-host. He is CJ Chris 
Do you want a long intro? Because <laughs> it's already pretty long. Uh, He's got, Peter's got the look on his face like, what do I call him this time? How many? We've got three aliases going late, on here. Late for dinner? No, never. Never no. anyone. Mm-hmm. No, CJM, Chris Mira, Christopher John Mira, whatever you'd like to call me. All right, late for dinner over here is going to be... No. <laughs> that actually goes together. <laughs> So unless you're really late, and then you're just SOL. <laughs> so a lot of us, no food for you. Are, a lot of us are longtime fans of the X Men, be it in all the different formats. It can be movies, comic books, video games, doesn't matter. But one of the main ones that a lot of people know with the X Men is television. And Eddie, yourself, you never got into X Men the animated series until fairly recently. You ended up getting the DVDs over time. Yep. And. Your introduction to the X-Men animated was actually, I believe, during Spider-Man and his amazing friends in the 1980s. Pretty much, yeah. And I like, couldn't tell you that I went a complete run with, with that, but I remember some of that, though. You're, but you remember seeing Magneto on screen? Yes, Magneto. Mm-hmm. Eddie Wilson's close personal friend, Eric Magneto Lynch. Magnus on the uh, X-Men animated series. That is true. That's the third episode of season one. And, guys... There's also the 1989, I believe, Pride of the X-Men, which... It's about right, yeah. ...was certainly an animated series featuring a Australian Wolverine. Never heard of it. It was literally only one episode, and it was never released. It was a part, I believe, of the Marvel Action Hour. No, I think it was released because I had a VHS copy well, of it. It was never released as a full-on series, I meant. Oh, okay. But it was released on like multiple DVDs. Like I have one version where it's an Arthur, Arthur Adams cover on there. Oh, good. And other ones, you know, have been released. It's, like I said, Pride of the X-Men utilizing the main star, Kitty Pride. I thought you said mute, almost mutant, mutilizing, yeah. Oh, would you like to? No. You made it seem like an Australian Wolverine was a bad thing? Yeah. Well, considering he's Canadian. Considering the guy that made the role famous, though, where's he from? Yeah, but that was Earth. later. <laughs> that was lots later. And if you didn't hear him speaking his regular homegrown accent, you'd say he's, his English was perfect. Werewolf of London. Clary. Yeah, yeah. His hair was perfect, too. Oh, there we go. That, too. <laughs> For a guy from Canada, though, he's very mean. It happens. <laughs> and here we are. What else? And then, of course, in 1992, animation would be flipped on its ear with an adamantium claw, you know, protruding out of it, maybe. I don't know. Ouch. I, I don't know where I was going with Talk this. Talk about uh, ear piercing idea. the hard way. <laughs> but... X-Men, the animated series, ended up dropping on Fox Kids Network in the 1990s. Like I said, 1992. Boom. And you looking for this? Well, no, that's Rhodey. Okay, that's right. Well, you said dropped, so. Well, you stop that. <laughs> but the idea of X-Men, the animated series, came, I believe, with also the help of Saban, who are responsible for bringing the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers stateside. And 1990s Fox was something that, you know, Chris and I both grew up on, and... It was very much a staple of our childhoods and seeing, again, the impact that show has where rumor and innuendo is going around that it might happen again. They might be bringing it to the Disney Plus format, which we do get, which we do touch upon during our interview with Eric and Julia. But the fact it's still mentioned by so many people and so highly regarded, what do you think is what causes that to be? I think the writing of the show, I mean... I was four or five when I watched it, so to me what attracted me was the colors and the characters. Um, watching it as an adult now, it's very adult theme. Like it's a lot for a child to understand. Yeah. Um 
also though with the X-Men series though, it actually was the first one to do a crossover with like Spider-Man. Um, what is this? A crossover episode? Yeah, I'm just <laughs> throwing that out there. So it was ahead of its time. And you know, myself, like I didn't really I watched it as a kid, but it was like more background noise. I was more excited for the uh funny animal cartoons like Animaniacs, Tiny Toon Adventures. But watching that, I'm like, oh, this is something special, you know? You just didn't know it then. Come on. Yeah. And the idea of what they had at the time, again, I, I believe X-Men the Animated Series and Batman the Animated Series, which came out at exactly the same exact time. Fox Kids. Yeah. And mm. there were so many different networks trying to replicate that success. You ended up getting a lot of shows like Wildcats. You ended up getting Street Fighter. You ended up getting Savage Dragon. SWAT Cats. SWAT, well, SWAT Cats was really good, Street though. Street Sharks. That was not good. <laughs> Biker Mice from Mars. That's, Do you that's, remember that? That's something not many people will remember, but whenever I go to a con and I like see a vendor with nothing but toys... I, remember, I just remember the fat cat. He was a pilot and the black eye. I remember all that. Yeah. and Black cat with the red eyes. Well, I'm, go- I'm more going now towards Biker Mice from Mars, which is something that... And they had the Metal Mouse, too. Yeah. I recently encountered my first experience of Street, street Sharks, you said, right? Because I really mm-hmm. hadn't heard of it. Because somebody came into a comic book store in Florida when I was away not too long ago at CJ's Comics and Toys and had that f- there. And, and I don't even know if I had gotten an answer to why... What is that? I see half a shark and the rest is pants. <laughs> and, and like, what, wait a minute, what? So, Street Sharks, okay. It was a ripoff of the Ninja Turtles. Um, they're notorious for hating pizza. So, <laughs> everything the turtles were, they're not. Okay. So, yeah. So, there you go. They I, wore I, pants, I, of course. They wore I, I pants. Had a, I had a lot of their toys. I even had a um, the Tiger Shark. I had them at the bank. It was like it's just a coin bank. Well, to go... Which I still, like... It's somewhere. It's probably worth something now. Yeah. The, the funniest thing is, in regards to Street Sharks, it has a Marvel connection because in the 1990s, they did like pitch reel videos. Like, you want to buy this toy. You want to check this toy out and sell it in your stores, blah, blah, blah. Guess who was the one they had playing with Street Sharks? Stan Lee. Vin I, Diesel. Vin Diesel. <laughs> Vin Diesel, There's by the way, connection. with hair, mind you. Well, okay. And a tank top, for well, because it's Vin and Diesel. And he probably was looking a little, not as built, perhaps, but he still had as his muscular. I don't know. He still had his volcano voice. Well, that's a good thing. When you really think he talks like a volcano, he talks like a like a volcano can actually talk. A volcano to me just spits. Well, Krakoa. He talks like an iron giant. Oh wow, Krakatoa maybe. Well, Krakoa, I'm thinking of from the X Men because I've been reading the Chris Claremont run. Oh whoa whoa okay all right. Were, were you doing like a, a what's new pussycat just now? Yeah sure why not. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tom Jones. It's not unusual. <laughs> I also think the weird thing, though, with the X-Men animated series was, is anytime you have cartoons kiss, they would do that. It looks so weird. Right. Like, I don't know why it was like a prominent thing I remember, though, but it's just like when Scott and Gene kiss. It's just super weird. Um, and then X-Men brought us like a very notorious meme of Wolverine with the hand on the picture. Yes. And the juggernaut. <laughs> My personal favorite moment in the X-Men animated series is the scene where, hey, Scott, and then Wolverine just walks over and he does that little animation cycle of, and just punches Wolver- or punches Scott in the stomach. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's been yeah played over and over. I've seen, yeah, so... It's still one of my favorite moments in animation history when you really think about it. Just it's There's like a minute reel of just Wolverine just being just a terrible person to... <laughs> well, I mean... 
Scott is a dick too himself, so just saying. Yeah. I don't know. But then so again, that's where they got the line from in the first X Men movie. Okay. I mean, it generally, I mean, look at him, you know. Oh no! Oh, what line? That he's a dick. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he is a dick. <laughs> Prove it's you. You're a dick. Okay. And Magneto had some valid points. <laughs> yes, he did. I don't think there's any question there, actually. But the whole basis of the nostalgia of X-Men, the animated series, for people like us, you know, me and Chris, I've always found it interesting that you were never into the show, at least, you know, in the beginning. You never got to watch it, because I believe that was during your comic book sabbatical where you're like, no, no, it's too much. I have to stop. It was time to time to move on. Yes, exactly. X-Force number one and two? No, no. <laughs> I was there for those. Come on now. You make it sound like you're a war vet now. No, no, no. I was, I was there on the sidelines for the polychrome covers. <laughs> oh, my God. That's a cool tangent. <laughs> Actually, where were you a lot when the, the chromium happened? And a lot of the, what, uh, 1993 annuals? I got these after the fact when they came out. And they had a trading card in each one of them. And then Malibu Comics did a cover where they had a bullet hole in the middle of there. Could you imagine that? Like, that production session? All right, just going to shoot a bunch of comics. That's the end of that joke. It really didn't land very well. It, it didn't. It yeah. was awful. But anyway. But there have been other comics that have done something like that. There's and jokes least, that have landed. Yes. Yes. There's been, I think, I want to say. Five. Well, five jokes that Wolverine, have landed. Wolverine. No, no. Wolverine issue number 50, for some reason, I, I think has some special characteristic about it. And I think that may be it. It's got a, a torn hole in the center of it. Maybe claw marks going through, so you have those Ooh, lines. Kinky. Yeah. Did they really shoot a comic? There's an issue of uh, <laughs> there's an issue of this series by Malibu Comics where, like, in the middle of it, there's a hole, and it's supposed to be like a bullet hole. Like, the how cover. are you going to read it though? There's a hole in the book. They they wrote the they whole wrote around book. it. <laughs> they, literally that. And yes. They did the art around it. They did like this whole like That's production it. method of it. But it's like it was the 1990s. People really loved holograms. Yeah. Really? Like, I... Sure. You went, when you went to Eternal Con, I sent you a text. I go, Eddie, can you try and track down Incredible Hulk number 425 for me, please? I couldn't. I tried. It's all good. But, like, the idea of, you know, that cover is like... Oh, an Alpha Flight number one, but not for the price you wanted. Yeah, I, and I saw it for five. Oh, you should have gotten it, because I saw it for double. It, I, I, that one, for ten? One yeah, I saw it for ten. Oh, no. Oh, yes. <laughs> I oh! Did. But those hologram covers, yes, that went across the... Um, I think an X-Men storyline of the Phalanx, I believe, if I'm saying it right. Eddie, that's just inappropriate. That's like that's that's too no, sexual for the show. No, it's not that other word. Oh. It ended with an X, not a... Uh, oh. Ick, or whatever. Mmm. It's exact. Sound like Frankenstein. Mmm. <laughs> you made a yummy sound. But anyway, anyway, off of the subject of cereals for some reason, I guess. Two. But anyway. Five. Five reasons. In the 1990s, you would, weren't really into that stuff, but... Now you're getting into the series. You're watching it for the first time. What is it like for yourself seeing X-Men, the animated series? You know, when you know of it as this quote-unquote legendary series that was responsible for so much of being a proper adaptation of the characters, what is it like seeing it for that first time? Well, I may have alluded to this in a prior episode. I can't remember now. But trying to acclimate the voices that these characters were taking, that's what you had to work with then. And I'm coming at it from the reverse of knowing what they sound like in the movies. And oh, now I was going to say, like, from your version of reading the comics, I'm, I want to know who you cast as Wolverine. Was it Bruce Willis? Oh. Was it Dudley Moore? Definitely not Dudley <laughs> Bob Moore. Bob Hoskins. 
Oh, you know? This guy over here. Please, Eddie. Okay. <laughs> Roger. Uh, that was the, the most, uh, what, challenging or thing that I had to adjust to. But um, I'm going with it, and it's it seems to be working. It's a different, this may have been mentioned also, a different thing to see, well, in, in, our, in our interview with the creators of, of the X-Men animated series, how at the end of each episode you'd get a brief write-up of what each character could do, and you'd get the turning of each each character, which, look, I don't know if it, would have, if it had a 3D effect, sort of. It was the modeling, 3D modeling. The modeling, yes. Like okay. we talked about during the interview that you're going to hear people. That's exactly right. <laughs> don't bury the lead. Mm-hmm. But anyway. That's what I got out of that at this point. And how much have you watched since? Like you, I'm really just still on the first season, so. Okay. Yeah, and I need then, to really get, get into it. And I see how in some cases, and I don't know if it was... I have to look to see if it was throughout other volumes, if they did two-part episodes. They did. Oh, they did a lot. That series was notorious. Previously. For, yeah. <laughs> well, that's where yeah, that came from, that's right? That's where yeah. the title of the book that uh, Eric and Julia did, yeah. And, again, it's the impact what the characters the and other, the series had. The other thing, too, that, I'm, that I now that we're talking about, I'm remembering, is when you get into this a subsequent episode, you're getting a recap of what's gone on before, and... In the beginning, at least, of Volume 1, it didn't say previously on X-Men. It just brought you into... Hey, guys, what's up? This was on the X-Men. <laughs> Something like that. You might not have even gotten those words. You just got the brief, you know, few Top. scenes of, Yo, of what's been going on. <laughs> yeah. So, Boom, you're looking for this? <laughs> See, that can work, too, in this moment. Well, it can, now that I brought it up earlier, sure. Yeah. Callbacks. You're, you're welcome. Okay, so that was what I got out of uh, so far on the X-Men animated series. And more to come. I think even at the end of the Enter Magneto episode, it said to be continued at the end of that episode. But it didn't have a, uh, you know, part two to it. I forget what the next one goes into. But time- it gets super weird as the seasons yeah. go on. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, with like Bishop and Cable. And I forgot the guy's name, but he's like, I don't know. He has, he has like spider legs, like metal legs, like a fat dude. Oh, Mojo. Yeah. With it's, the Mojoverse? Yeah, it gets so weird. So. <laughs> All right, so now I think it is time to go over to our interview with Eric and Julia Leewald of X-Men the Animated Series and the book previously on X-Men. And the interview starts right about now. Today we are joined with, as we continue our X-Month, Eric and Julia Leewald, and they are partially responsible for a major part of my childhood X-Men, the animated series from 1992, a show that, by the way, people, is still highly regarded and highly remembered by so many people to the point where they even made an X-Men 92 comic by Chris Sims and Chad Bowers, I believe, in 2015, question mark. But they did that stuff. And I got to say, first and foremost, guys, thank you so much for a major part of my childhood. Aw, well, 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 thank you for growing up <laughs> yeah, and no, enjoying it and remembering it fondly. And no and monies was, were exchanged. for us. Yeah. <laughs> no, no monies were exchanged in the, in the development of Peter Melnick's childhood. How dare you, sir? <laughs> in this case. <laughs> so now, guys, first off, you guys ended up writing a book previously on X-Men. Tell the folks at home, first off, how they can get that book and also why they should get that book. I'll jump in here. It is available for purchase through Jacobs Brown Media Group, which is a long name, but jacobsbrownmediagroup.com. 
uh, you can buy it there, and if you buy a copy through them, you will get an autographed copy because Eric sits down with the stack periodically and signs them. Uh, and you can find Jacobs Brown Media. We have many ways to find us. XMenTAS.com is our major website blog, and we have a link there. Also, we're on Twitter at XMenTAS and Instagram at XMenTAS and Facebook at Previously on X-Men. And if you're really lazy, you can buy it on Amazon. It's there, too. <laughs> <laughs> Good to have alternatives. There you go. Yeah. But she's oh, got this the down. About, uh, yeah. Oh, and Eric, what was about five years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I started poking him thinking... Yeah. Be- this was before the Disney takeover, um, or Re- recent. What's the what's recent Disney takeover. It's like uh, X Men, the animated series, kind of fell through the cracks in terms of which corporation owned what part of it, and who had all the rights and who had part of the rights. And it, 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 in my yeah, mind, so it wasn't getting celebrated in the way that, say, Batman the animated series had been celebrated over mm-hmm. the years. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, yeah, you know, Fox had some, and and uh, Disney had some, and. Out here in Hollywood, nobody ever supports something that somebody else has some rights to. So, <laughs> uh, to, to our mind, in the, to where we were looking at, it looked like they were like killing off the X Men, not in the movies, which Fox was pumping out, but but in the books. And they just we try to call them about maybe doing a book about the show because we knew we could get in touch with all the cast and the crew and the artists and and get good interviews with them. But they they wouldn't even return the phone calls because just because of that corporate difference. Um, and now, now they are. Now they're they're talking to us happily. But so we made we made the book basically on our own without Marvel's permission, which is its own fascinating challenge. Mm-hmm. But uh, long and short of it is, the book's 450 pages, got a couple hundred illustrations in it. Most of those are storyboard uh, drawings from, from the actual storyboards that we had that we used. And uh, it's we interviewed 36 folks. Uh, uh, casts, artists, um, executives, uh, composers, everybody that had a uh, lot of writers. Writers like to talk. Yeah, because uh, no one talks to us. <laughs> uh, and so, and did that, and then we gave a history of, of how it all got put together, mostly from my point of view, having been the showrunner from day one to the end, and had uh, so so that was so it's got a history, then a, like a filmography with with uh, comments about each episode of the seventy six episodes. And then some other fun things thrown in, like uh, fan testimonials talking about what the show meant to them when they were growing up. So, Eric, you were with this project from day one. Julia, whereabouts did you come into it? Uh, we, Eric and I had originally met. Um, our offices were, happened to be side-by-side side, uh, at Disney when they were doing the Disney Afternoon with uh, Chippendale's Rescue Rangers and Goof Troop, Darkwing Duck, and all those shows. And he and I met each other there as writers for those different series. Then after each of us had a three-year contract, after that we rolled over, uh, we, we got married, rolled over into the freelance market, and uh, you got the phone call after working on Beetlejuice for its second year when it was yeah. on Fox Kids, that they had a new show they wanted to talk to you about it at, Mar- at Fox. Yeah, yeah, that's how I got the gig, because I've done a year with, uh, with them on Beetlejuice, so they, I guess they just looked around. They'd been really wanting to do X-Men from the moment that Fox Kids started in 1990, Margaret Lush just said, okay, my, my number one priority is to get X-Men on the air somehow. And this was, it's weird thinking back to then, but Marvel, there had been no more, no Marvel movies, and none of the Marvel TV shows had done well. And she just had spent seven years at Marvel Productions trying to sell Marvel shows and having no luck because uh, for whatever reason, Hollywood, the, you know, the three big networks just thought, ah, you know, 
not enough people interested in you know cartoon uh, comic book superheroes. You know, it's just kind of inbred, and they people you know thought balloons. It's not it's not television, and so she could never sell it. Now now she got the chance, and by my great luck, uh, I'd been able. I would I had done a show for her the year before, and she just I guess thought. I was the right tone for the job because it certainly I was no ex, I didn't know really the X Men before I started, which was really scary. Yes. <laughs> and there's honestly so much continuity and storytelling that you know you have the Chris Claremont run of the X Men, and there's so much stuff that you have to absorb too, especially. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we had the, the the great gag is I got we got the call the night before at ten o'clock at night saying, oh by the way, you got to come in and Stan Lee and Haim Saban and all these people are going to be there, and we're going to say that you're going to be show running the X Men and and writing the show Bible and coming up with the first thirteen episodes, and I just had to bite my lip and not say well. It's 10 o'clock at night. I don't know the X-Men. And I read other book comics, but that's one I hadn't picked up much. So uh, how am I supposed to figure this out? There's no Internet. Uh, the comic book stores are closed. Yeah. Um, I just had this kind of nod and smile my way through the meeting and say, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, I love these guys. Love these guys. And read them very quickly. Did Stan try and maybe trick you with little things like, now, what do you think of that one mutant, Mr. Fantastic? <laughs> That's kind of scary good right there, what you just did. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, no, I, I, I luckily was not, was not foolish enough to try to pretend I knew something. So it was, but no, it, was, uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And as I say, dropped in our lap at the last minute. We're thrown in the deep end. And as often happens with these smaller budgeted shows, you know, we started off two months behind and had to just crank. So it was, uh, you know, heads down until we could take a breath after we finished the thir- first 13. So. You know, just in going back and, and watching, for example, the first two episodes, uh, Night of the Sentinels, just to get a handle or an, an audible sense of how these characters would sound, uh-huh. that's probably, for me at least, the first time uh, putting putting a voice to a character who you only heard in your head. And I yeah. think they did pretty good. Oh, they did. They did. And there's, there's stories to that. I mean, that at first, when we were casting, it was terrible because people hadn't done a serious adult uh, animated show like this. So the, the the recordings we were getting back from Canada, which is where they recorded it, were all were kind of scooby doo-ish, which would have been awful. We just thought the show was, was <coughs> dead. But we endured and made them say, look, read the look at the books. Make, treat this like an adult movie, not like you know a little kids show, and you know give us your best voices. But there's a there's a story about about yeah hearing it for the first time, which is I didn't have that happen to me because I hadn't been a fan previously. But there's a great story from a guy named Bob Harris, who currently the editor in chief at DC, but he was the in charge of all the X Men books at Marvel back in '92 when this deal came through, and he was there. When with them in uh, Toronto when they were recording the first episodes, and he had he said this he said this magical uh, reaction watching characters that he that he was in charge of that he knew backwards better than anyone on the planet and had grown up with for thirty years suddenly come to life and hear their voices and he said it was like nothing else uh, he'd ever experienced. And so, yeah, I, I get you know hearing 
hearing people that you've imagined and and seeing is that right is that wrong uh which which can sink you know make make or sink a show if you get the voices wrong right I've always noticed with like the proper adaptation, you know, for example, like Batman the Animated Series, you read a Batman comic. You can't help but read Batman and Bruce Wayne's voice without Kevin Conroy. You just can't right. do it. I agree. I agree completely. And myself, I'm going currently because of X-Men. You know, X-Men ended up making me want to read more X-Men. So again, I'm rereading the Chris Claremont run and every single character for me is X-Men 92. Just that interpretation. And yeah. you just it's you can't do it any other way. Yeah. Yeah, no, we, that was so many things. You know, we've we've all been involved in dozens of shows over our far too long, long careers, and every now and again things come together right, and you get lucky, and and or you know you do your you find you know you do your best at a time other people are doing their best, and it comes together nicely. And this is just it really did for this for us. So we're you know it, it's, it's, we look back with gratitude at the time. It was just. Man, we gotta get these things done. Before, <laughs> yeah, let's get on to the next thing. I don't know if it's if we put it in the book, but that first thirteen for the first season, as soon as we finished writing them and the artists finished drawing the storyboards, we were all let go because they thought the show wouldn't was going to crash. They did had no faith in it at all, uh, and so once when it became a hit, a couple months later, you know, in January. Uh, they had to hire us all back and got most of us, you know, not everybody could come back because we were working on other shows, but it was, that was how low the expectations were at, at the network, sadly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, back from the beginning, uh, you know, mostly nowadays we see and are oversaturated perhaps with the X-Men movies and we hear what those characters sound like. So if somebody hasn't, or maybe revisits the animated series, it's, a, it's kind of a, a tough fit to get these voices down in in these characters and maybe wonder were they being serious here? I mean, were they really trying for the character to sound like that? But but back then, you know, you had nothing else to go by or with except for what you were reading. Isn't there a Cal Dodd moment mm-hmm. with Hugh Jackman? Oh yeah. yeah, that was that was that, that was a fun thing that Cal Dodd. Uh, our our voice of Wolverine. Who is still the only voice I hear in my head, yeah. despite a few Jackman. <laughs> yeah. Um, that since when they did when they did the feature uh, in 2000, after you know a couple three years after we finished doing the show, um, I guess it's because they're Hollywood people or they're movie people. Uh, they did go back to the comic books. The director and the writers just watched our show, and and the actors. And that was their point of reference. Like our point of reference was going back to the books. Their point of reference is going to us. And so when when uh, Hugh Jackman finally met Cal Dodd at some event, at some movie premiere or something, uh, he just walked up and shook his hand and said, and I, said I, I am so sick of listening to your voice. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> you know, he'd had it on tape, and yeah, that's what he was trying to which, into. You know, in, in the most complimentary way he could, but that, that's what he said, and they got a good laugh out of it. Now, one thing in regards to the show that a lot of people say is one of the best facts, or best, best qualities of X-Men, the animated series, is that it is a solid adaptation of the original source material. And recently, they ended up doing, for the second time on the big screen, Dark Phoenix, which mm. some people... They pat- they actually really do like the movie, I guess. I'm not one of them. But mm-hmm. there are also people that go on saying it is one of the they, how can you not do the adaptation right? Flip side, X-Men TAS is the most perfect 
adaptation of the Dark Phoenix storyline. Oh, thank you very much that's, for that. That's very, very gratifying to hear that. What What is it like knowing that, you know, these major Hollywood types with the film productions, they have the ability to make this stuff, but they fail on the dismount. But you guys are able to and make it absolutely perfect. Well, that's an excellent question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, honestly, I have great sympathy for them. I mean, we one of the one of the huge advantages we had, which we would wouldn't have if if we got a shot to do uh, a new series, of, uh, a new season of the show now. All, same people, um, it would be a whole new world. At the time, Marvel was a small company. We got basically no micromanaging from Marvel whatsoever. It was like, you guys make the TV show. We'll look and make sure you don't have one of the characters upside down. But uh, they didn't have final note on anything. Uh, Fox did. And Fox was, you know, we were working so fast, there was no time to second guess, or maybe we could try something different, or, or I wonder if we could do a focus group and see, you know, see how the story's working out. It was just basically me and the and whatever writer was doing that episode in the case of phoenix it was like two of my buddies from college so we were old writing for partners and we just sat down laid it out wrote it handed it in and the guys drew it and boom it was in the, you know in and out no second third fifth guessing i mean you hear about stuff about movies where they you know they reshoot stuff they have all sorts of people with you know, I mean, when we had this on some of the bigger TV shows we've been involved in, where everybody has uh, an idea about how it should go creatively, and you got 15 cooks trying to spoil things. And in our case, it was just, you know, me and the writer. And we were done with it, and we were on to the next story, and there was just no time to fuss. So it was kind of a gift that nobody had the power to make us redo it in some backwards I mean, there's a few people tried. I mean, we had some, oh, some attempts at product placement, like, oh, can you rewrite all the stories with these, you know, Australian Happy Meal toys in them? <laughs> or, you know, can we get, have Wolverine, you know, have uh, a Wolverine phone with, with claws on it? And, and, and we, we, luckily, the network was serious, and they just told everybody to take a hike. But we've been on other shows where those people, the people with those suggestions, had the leverage, and you couldn't say no, or they just fire you. Imagine a Wolverine cell phone. By the way, like this is 1980s, 1990s flip ones with a little antenna, but it's an adamantium <laughs> blade. Yeah. Well, well, that would have been cool. The one that I think they wanted was, and I, you can see it on eBay occasionally because it did come out. But it's it's Wolverine himself as a crouched figure holding the phone's earpiece out for you know holding the phone part out for you. <laughs> like what? But that was how phones yeah. were back then. Yeah, what what nasty son of a bitch is going to have a, fo- a plastic phone of himself? I'm the best there is at what I do, and what I do is product placement. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, he- so we, we, we had certain advantages, but, you know, we it's funny. Mark Edens, who was like the main guy that helped me on, on, on the stories, you know, his attitude is always, it's it's indulgent. I mean, you've got, if you've got it, if source material... You know, the, the 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 most the best thing you can do is is try to stick with it and that and that trying to make it different or make it yours or put your fingerprints on it it's just you know, it's 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 lazy and it's cheap and and there, we we had no reason I mean some of the stories were so were so good to start with I mean there's certain stuff we pulled out because we didn't think it fit for TV 
but we tried to keep the the heart and soul of it and and uh yeah i i i do appreciate the fact that there are a lot of times when people don't they just they get a they get a property they get it they say oh we've got a, an intellectual property now it's pre-sold that's a big word out here uh now let's do it something completely different and you want to pull your hair out so well, why do you think it's pre-sold because you've got 10 million people out there with expectations for it and why are you doing it upside down you know yeah but that doesn't seem to occur to you know a lot of people that produce movies or tv so there you go now going back over to dark phoenix Listener of the show, Shane Hagedorn, wants to know, how did you feel about Fox spoiling Gene's death in their version of Phoenix by airing episodes out of order? Oh, oh you caught that, did you? <laughs> oh, God, that hurt. It just... well, that was part, okay, that was part of the ongoing struggle from the very beginning um, when Eric, you and Mark made the decision with, with the folks, with um, Margaret Lesh and Sydney to, to try to tell sequential stories um, where they'd be connected, kind of like comic books themselves tell. Yeah, yeah, and that made them effective, but they, they're always worried, you know, you, it takes so long, at least it used to take three months overseas to animate something, you get it back, and you're a couple weeks away from airing, and if it looks terrible, which occasionally it did, don't have time to fix it. If, if, if they're in order, then if they're connected, then you're stuck. You can't do episode four until episode three's right. And animation is kind of you know kind of hard that way. I think it's a lot more in-house these days, and it would be easier. But back then, you know, things were still hand-painted, and it took forever. And so that literally happened. We finished the the, the Phoenix saga, and we're supposed to have the next episode where they're grieving, and we yep. have, we write a memorial scene for Gene, and it's all heart tears your heart out, and Gene's missing, presumed dead, and and Cyclops leaves the team because he's so grief stricken at the end of the episode they found a sense that they they found her out there she's she's still alive and then you're supposed to go on with the rest Gene's supposed to be part of it but they screwed up that episode and i don't know i, I you know i it, it was as a case of they were trying to they they sent it to a much cheaper animation house it came back terrible and there wasn't time to fix it and 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 they just said well, what the heck? Maybe people, you know, I, I I don't know if the people marketing it or the people at the local TV stations cared or understood that that was in effect the sixth episode of the Phoenix Saga or not. But it was, and it 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 was it was heartbreaking when it happened. Looking at it again and revisiting it, and I originally had a copy of this on uh, VHS. So I was there from the beginning, I guess, in a, in a sense, and have since moved up to uh, to DVD. But just seeing how you got a little bit of info on each of the characters when the end of each episode came about, and it was just about enough time to read what each character did. You you got to see uh, as if it was a uh, I don't know what type of figure you could say it was that it, it kind of oh the CGI sp- model that's mm-hmm. it yes exactly. And what struck me funny is when you got to Jean Grey, it said limited telepathic ability and i said really yeah no i don't think so <laughs> unless they didn't want you to know something at that point or they didn't know i i'm actually curious though when they did the uh, cgi models that you know would turn around they showed all the x-men except for one i believe it was jubilee yes when they did that at the end yeah correct did they ever render a model for jubilee you'd, 
you know, what happened there was that was Will Minio, who was the head designer and really he was wonderful. He fought all of our political battles for us. And he, at the time, that kind of CGI was really expensive. And so getting the, uh, but we were all concerned that to, to try to get the audience to know who these people were and know what their powers were. And so he said, let me put this thing at the end and this will remind people who they are and they'll look at them and they'll be fun. And so they, we did seven or eight of them. And then, but then someone at Fox looked at it and said, uh-uh, this looks like, this looks like toys. Like product placement. Yeah, and mm. we can't have this or the FCC will come down on us. So it was, it was shut down after seven or however many we put in. Now, and, and it was not product placement. There's your irony. Yeah, just, yeah. It was just trying to, try to get people familiar with, with, with who the characters were, yeah. which is an odd thing, again, to think about. We were told we'd figure about 85% of our audience wouldn't know who the X-Men were when they turned the TV on. So we had to make sure to be clear who they were. That's part of the title sequence and part of other efforts. But this was part of that effort to remind them who everybody was. Let me just jump on that not knowing who they were point. In the first episode, the Sentinels do identify Jubilee, give you statistics, 5 feet, 90 pounds, Chinese-American, and yet Storm, Rogue, come up, unidentified mutants. And I'm like, what? Well, because they ended up sending the information because she was a part of the uh, thing now as a result. Mm -hmm. I thought for sure, since it was, I thought it would be, it was known, and you'd get some more statistics on all of them as they, as the Sentinels scanned and realized, well, they're, they, they know they're a mutant, but they didn't know anything else about them. No, wow. I think, well, I think uh, the, the, the thought there that uh, her foster, Jubilee's foster parents had, had put her into the, her, put her name into the program. Yes. Yeah. Uh, as a mutant. Uh, uh, and that's what got her on their radar. Uh, if that makes sense. Yep. But I agree with you. That is one of those moments you go, wait, what? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> if you look too closely, if you stare too hard. Well, Eddie, yeah. if there's any other moments where you're questioning something, just ask me and I'll let you know what they do on The Simpsons. A wizard did it, so you're fine. <sighs> <laughs> now, my other question on the topic of Jubilee, one of the things I've noticed is in the live action interpretation in X-Men Apocalypse, which we actually just recently watched for the show, mm. my biggest grievance in the movie is how little they utilize Jubilee and on the flip side, Jubilee originally was just such a minor character. You guys ended up making her into a top-tier X-Men character to the point where when they released uh, the Jubilee action figures, a part of the Marvel Legends, that got a reaction at Toy Fair. And it was the 1992 outfit, pink bubblegum, etc. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm curious, you know, with the character, why do you think that they can't get the character right in these newer adaptations? Can I take a step back and say... As a female, why can't they get all the women right in these adaptations? Yes. It's so frustrating, not just Jubilee, mm. but um, the strength and the power of Storm or Rogue. You know, I, I, I've, been, I've been frustrated as a viewer. Um, Jubilee is on the list, but she's not at the top of my list for those reasons. But I agree with you. I do. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. And you just have to ask the people, you know, doing the movies. Um, we understand when, you know, like when... When they chose not to use Jubilee or Kitty Pryde or something on the first movie, when they went young with Rogue, but that was kind of a it's a thing for us. I think it was a our hard shift for people that uh, had loved our show because a, an awful lot of women were brought to comic books watching our show because you had Rogue and Storm as these flying ass kicking superheroines, and so and Storm didn't have much of anything to do in the first movie. 
and you know Halle Berry's just sitting there kind of listening while the guys take care of things and rogue they play rogue a young rogue before she's uh, absorbed her her superpowers so it was it was a weird switch for us and i just you know there's just i guess so much you can that's based on there's so many good things in the first movie. Mm-hmm. You know, we were thankful for that. Oh, I mean, yeah. The casting was astounding, and the fact that they took everything seriously, compared to how bad, you know, how bad they could have missed in the first movie. But I think one of the weaknesses of the first movie was just yeah, underutilizing the women, and so and and not having Jubilee for one thing. Is that. And one of the biggest strengths of X Men TAS, as well as like the Chris Claremont run, is. Anybody in the X-Men could be a leader any time with the characterization of yeah. these characters. Flip side, you know, you bring up how she just wasn't that great of a character in the movies, at least. Storm doesn't feel like the leadership material. It's just, uh, she's just there. And that's a shame because, again, TAS was able to do it perfectly. Claremont's run perfectly. Movies, just major dismount, you know, failure of uh, dismount. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I think, too, uh, with, with X-Men TAS, that because Pride of the X-Men had come out earlier and had not done what it had hoped to do, and, and a lot of the folks involved in that were now at Fox Kids and were determined to make the X-Men right, as it were, uh, Kitty Pride did not get to make that transition into the, into the new series. And that meant, okay, so who's going to be the audience's way in to tell these stories and to meet these people? And Jubilee was a newer character uh, in the comic books at that time. Am I right, Eric? And yeah, yes. Yeah, and, and we all thought we needed a some sort of teenager there. I mean, we much prefer preferred writing for adult characters so they could have adult. Uh, I mean, they, these are superheroes that can level a city. Having them, you know, ha- having them be adults only seemed to make sense to us, and then we could tell much more adult stories. But but having somebody that young uh, as the audience's way in in the first episode was really helpful for us. The, the only trick there is because she is younger, you know, and, and a teen as opposed to an adult as the rest of them were, she, she didn't get to be in all the scraps because she was a kid compared to the adults that we had to work with. Yeah. Uh, so there we, had, we had to thread that needle a few times with yeah. her. But I always liked Jubilee. <laughs> and, and, and interestingly, when we ask people at cons, we've been going to a lot of cons the last couple of years, who their favorite characters are, a reasonable percent, I don't know, 5 or 10%, say Jubilee. And we're surprised by that because looking back, I think we could have written her into more stories than we did, that, that she f- found herself set aside some. I mean, it's obviously people love Wolverine. I mean, that's, that's, that's a no-brainer. But some of the other characters, looking back, uh, we've tried to have a balance. We really, right. for, the, for our sake, for storytelling's sake, if you're, trying, if you're telling 76 different stories, we tried to balance it out and pass it around and give everybody as many individual episodes as we could. And that, that was really helpful for, for us. I mean, compared, you know, we've got friends that worked on Batman and other shows that are wonderful shows, but... We had the benefit with that we could provide variety of storytelling and background and old lovers and old, uh, uh, you know, missing parents and, you know, all this stuff for nine different people. And we could mix it up and vary it. Whereas basically, you know, Batman's Bruce Wayne and the variation is much more in, like, you know, who the, who the rogues gallery of villains are. And so we got to focus on our. I think that's one reason the 
there, there's a, an affection for the X, one of many that that affects for the X Men that some other shows didn't quite grab is because there's this whole big family of interdependent, struggling, flawed people that had each other's back, and we seem we tried to value them all equally. Uh, during the run, was there any Marvel character that you wanted to put in, but you you know for whatever reason wasn't allowed or you took it in another direction? I'll I'll say this the um the the um, when Eric told me that he and Mark, you needed to set up the stakes. What are the stakes in this mad, fantastic world that you are laying out for the yeah. first thirteen, and what could be the only thirteen? It's like, well, if it's giant mutant against giant mutant, then it's you know, then it's you know, like fake wrestling, and everyone resets, and everyone's fine the next week, and it all goes on that way. But. Eric, you had decided, you you felt strongly, and I agree that the idea of sacrifice was important here, and the idea of um, allowing the audience to feel the sacrifice of these characters and what it meant, uh, and that the stakes were real. Therefore, you needed to kill a character, and <laughs> well, good luck on Saturday morning. That's that's not going to happen, um, or you're never going to get that past the broadcast standards and practice person, who, by the way, a woman named Avery Coburn deserves all the credit in the world for um, working with everybody involved with X-Men, for allowing it to be uh, as, as mature and as authentic as it was. But so, Eric, was you... And the other secret weapon was on the art side. The, um, a lot of the artists were dyed-in-the-wool fanboys and could quote you chapter and verse. So when Eric said, we'd like to sacrifice someone who would sacrifice himself for the team in the pilot episode to show folks that the stakes are real... Uh, there was a character named Changeling who, uh, in the in the books years ago, had appeared briefly, but and but had sacrificed himself on behalf of Professor X. Okay, all right, that's a character we can use as part of the X Men lore. Then, writing that story, after you get permission to do it, uh, hear from the Marvel lawyers that well, it turns out that DC has a character named Changeling. Mm. Granted, their character was created and developed what, five, ten years after Marvel had created the character Changeling. But we don't want, we don't want to even cross that bridge. We don't want to mess with that. We need to come up with something else. So the character that was Changeling became Morph and remained a Changeling-like character because he could you know, transform his body, you know, a shapeshifter. Yeah. And so, in spite of the fact that you wanted to start with a show, start with a character who was in the Marvel Universe, uh, the lawyers insisted on changing him that way. Yeah, we had actually started before that in the original script, first draft. We we used Thunderbird, uh, who was uh, the new X Men in '75, and we'd had him killed. And then somebody got you know the politically sensitive moment and said, "Oh, wait a minute! If you have the only Native American character you've got in the show, and you sh- you kill him in the first story, that's not going to look very good." So that's when we were looked for for someone like Changeling, um, and that's why if you notice in the opening sequence, uh, the the title sequence, there's a character that kind of looks like Thunderbird on the on the bad guy side. Yeah. They slam together. That's 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 his evil brother. But we because he'd already been designed. Yeah, they'd already drawn him to to be part of the X Men, uh, and but then we figured then the powers that be figured no, you can't kill him. Come up with somebody else. 
sit down with. But really, honestly, uh, we got to put, you know, use an awful lot of characters. And it's it's kind of busy anyway, you know, with eight or nine heroes and trying to find enough people to to, to be a serious uh, challenge for them. We, we pumped an awful lot of characters in there. But at the time, you're right, there were, Marvel had strange uh, uh, rules about, oh, no, there's all these ones you can't use because you don't have the, the rights to it. Um, and we we didn't for a while, and then uh, the artists started putting them in in cameos. And so there are 30 or 40 characters in there that don't have lines that are in the background or, or are seen fleetingly. Uh, Doctor Strange and Deadpool and, you know, uh, just dozens of them, Thor, Spider-Man, uh, that we didn't have the rights to, but <laughs> our, the artists snuck in for fun. On the and, topic of characters that got snuck in, actually, I'm curious, whose idea was it to throw Howard the Duck on Beast's T-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> on Beast's shirt. Ah! I'm gonna I'm gonna say Larry Houston. Uh, that that or, or Frank Brunner. I think the oh, main, yeah. main designer Frank Brunner. That was his doing because I think he'd actually worked on the original book. If I remember correctly, I think uh, Hank is one of two fathers of uh, Howard the Duck, with uh, Steve Gerber. <laughs> that would make sense then. Okay, because yeah. Larry Houston was the one who was so very good at um, uh, managing to get those Easter eggs in there. And also on the topic you guys just mentioned, uh, Larry Houston, recently Larry had said, the one thing we'd like to do more than anything else is to continue where we left off. And a lot of people have been going on, the internet's been a buzz lately, uh, about uh, maybe X-Men 92 returning as a Disney Plus series. Now, if that were to happen, what would you guys want to see happen? <laughs> well, this well? Is, yeah, yeah, we've been talking, uh, this, this, this has an odd origin. I mean, it's all over the web right now, the last <laughs> couple of weeks. But this all started with when we were doing the book and starting to go to cons, fans would ask this question, if you had a sixth season, what would you do? And we didn't, I, we hadn't thought about it because we just all went on to our next jobs and yeah. then thought, okay, well, this is done. Let's go on. And so finally, I just came up, you know, I came up with a, with a basic story, you know, simple story arc saying, well, Xavier's out with Lalandra, and uh, you know the, the X Men have been left behind, and it's a year later, and they're in disarray, and they're infighting, and they're at each other's throats. As and, you might imagine, they would be. And they get a distress call, and have to go up to space to where where Lalandra is, and where frail, dying Xavier is to try to save his ass. And they do or they don't, but the adventure brings them all back together, and they come home uh, a better team for it. That, I just you know, I threw that out. People liked it, and and then of all things, for some reason, and and I mentioned it to the cast, who we got to meet at a con because yeah. we had never met before, which yeah. is crazy. Yeah, and and I know that, was, but and also there was a producer that was curious. Oh, I can get you guys all back together again. The cast is almost all still with us, and so are the artists, and so are all the writers. You know, why don't we you know do a new season of it? Let me pitch this to Marvel. And we said, sure, to the guy, you know, whatever, run with it, we'd love to do it. And we asked the cast and the writers and the artists, and of course, they all said, of course, they'd love to do it. I mean, for paycheck, if nothing else, but they all loved the experience of it. So, yes, everybody's up for it. But Marvel Disney, the, the truth of the matter is, Marvel Disney has not approached anybody about this at all. This is simply a case of, of us thinking, yeah, man, that would, could be cool. And somebody started, you know, with the Hollywood Reporter, some, somewhere, 
it started being like, oh, you know, word is on the street <laughs> that they're going to. Disney now that Disney, that Fox and uh, Marvel are back together with the X Men rights, they're going to do you know they're going to do X Men ninety two. They're, they're talking about it all over town, so which I guess is a good thing for us, you know. But <laughs> I don't. I think I don't think it's real. I think it's just somebody heard Larry say, "Yeah, we talked about it. We'd all do it," and thought that meant that it was coming from Disney, as opposed to just you know coming from us. And I know right now they're going to be doing a uh, Star Wars Clone Wars series, finishing off that finally on Disney Plus. So you never know; maybe it could happen. I like personally, you know, a couple of years ago when Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite was coming out, right? The uh, producer of that goes, "Well, no one really remembers the X Men," and I'm sorry, but that's adorable to hear because they're <laughs> so wrong. <laughs> and you know, when you end up seeing again the characters, the movies have done so well. I kind of don't think that they've forgotten them at all. Yeah, yeah, I mean if the X-Men Capcom thing uh it's it's like X, what are you remembering Street Fighter but not but not X-Men it's uh, <laughs> Oh, by the way, I don't know if you guys know it. We Julie and I did a, the first season of Street Fighter the animated show. <laughs> really? So, so we were there we were there on both sides of that the Marvel Capcom war. Yeah. And I just I just find it funny the whole concept of that fans have forgotten. Every single con I go to, there's at least one person that's doing an X Men '92 variation of the characters. Oh sure. So and yeah. I I've run into a fair share of jubilees over the past year alone. So. I will say the cosplay is pretty fantastic. Oh yeah. I've been very impressed with that, and it it seems to be the default for a lot of people is you know the X Men '92, and I'll say this I was privately very pleased. When with the films coming out, you know, there is 30 years of X-Men history before the comic, before the animated series even started. But they pretty much picked the same team that was in X-Men the animated series. Didn't have to do that, but to me that was kind of a validation that the show had gotten stuff right. Going back, I'm glad that it was settled that Morph would be this character's name because if you threw in something like, oh, I don't know, Scrawl, it could have really sent things <laughs> a different direction. Yeah, yeah. That was so, so. We've had a lot of fans say that. Well, you know, I was 11 years old and I'm watching this new show. I'm not sure what's about. And then the first story, one of the leads gets killed, and I was just so freaked. You know, I was hooked. Mm. And well, that's good. That was a, we were supposed to, you know, supposed to get a sense of, of what you know what this world was like for them. So, well, all things notwithstanding, and all these characters that you've dealt with and or haven't worked with, is there? To each of you, a personal favorite that you have had over the years or whatever? I'm sorry. You just, well, character, favorite character? Yeah. Well, it, it, anyone who asks, <laughs> just speaking as someone who, for in terms of writing for the characters, but also uh, a character that's just dear to my heart, uh, it's, it's Beast. It's, it's Hank McCoy. I just find him, at, at the, on the writer side of things, we were always trying to sort of one-up each other. Uh, coming up with the more obscure but effective beast quote for whatever script we were working on, because there was a certain amount of, oh, I'm the smartest person in the room. No, I'm the smartest person in the room kind of sense, which Hank McCoy always was, the smartest person in the room. Oh, my stars and, and garters. <laughs> and then just from a fan standpoint, I find a situation um, romantic and tragic and all those other things that here's the person who is, in a way, at most with what his mutation is and yet is the most other to the rest of us just looking at him. He looks the most strikingly different 
but he's typically okay with that, um, which makes him to me a, a very interesting character. Yeah, yeah, and for, and for me, it's um, you know we ask when we go to cons and do panels, uh, about, we do about once a month. We always ask for clapping to see who's who's the favorite characters, and usually Wolverine. And interestingly, Gambit is way up there. Uh-huh. Gambit and Rogue are a very popular couple, but anyway, um, I pick a, a reasonably obscure character, not that hip a character, and that's Professor Xavier. And I think that comes from an empathy. Uh, having was being the showrunner and having I ended up working with like fifteen twenty different writers over the five years who were all trying to write for the show and all trying to make it all seamless and all seem like all part of the same world and so I very felt much felt like the dad and the responsible you know uh, professor there trying to keep everything straight and everything focused so I had great I had great sympathy for him uh, dealing with this extended family of mutants. Now, in the 1990s, a lot of television series ended up getting film adaptations. And was this the case? Was there ever an, a consideration? Because this question comes from Todd Matthey. Was an X-Men animated movie ever considered at one point? We would have loved it. Golly, that would have been the best. Yeah, <laughs> the best. Because we saw all the great work they did for the Batman ones. There were lots of good Batman animated, or at least animated DVDs. Yeah, say, Warner Brothers like, and DC were rocking that year. Yeah, like TV movie versions. That would have been cool. And we have the, there's a, a film critic that we really appreciate who loves animation and just believes that, that superheroes work better in animation than they do in live action, just as a, a net, as a matter of course. Um, we would love to do a feature because, I mean, doing the, the Phoenix Saga, which was 110 minutes of, of story, and the Dark Phoenix, which was 88, and Beyond Good and Evil, which was 88 minutes, doing those four... I mean, those three, uh, in effect, feature-length stories were great fun. I mean, it was really a, a challenge to, to make it, make them, you know, uh, stay together and focus and work together like that. So we would, we would love to do it, but nobody ever mentioned it. And there was such a, um, Marvel itself was going through such turbulent financial crises at the time. Even as X-Men, the animated series, was, was going, um, they were... <laughs> selling off rights to different characters, trying, and they went through bankruptcy during yeah. that time. Yeah, so while we were doing chaos. it. Yeah, so, so if, if that had been an ambition of somebody's, uh, you know, everybody was focused in, on holding the company together, and uh, I guess, you know, Fox was looking at other stuff, and yeah, it just it's funny to look back. It was not, uh, you know, we had an advantage of it being low budget and fast and, and uh uh, and kind of in disarray, but the downside was that larger projects didn't get didn't get suggested like you were talking about, let's say, an animated movie, which would have been wonderful. Yeah. Now, this question comes from listener, listener of the show, Diana. What were some of the, your greatest challenges when condensing large comic book arcs into the smaller digestible versions of the show? And that said, externally yours is one of the greatest Gambit stories, not only in the series, but in the character's overall history. How did you go about choosing side stories like Remy's with a literal lifetime of material to choose from? Ooh, that's good. Well, um, there were there were interesting. There were two ways that I think we were we came at at, make, at making the story, uh, choosing the stories, and I think in, in understanding how we went about it, they, she can understand how. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't as much. It wasn't that hard of a decision. Uh, we either had writers that 
knew all the books and said, man, I, we got to do this phalanx story. We just got to, we got to, let me find a way to figure it out that it would work on TV in, in maybe in two episodes. Or we had people that didn't know the, the uh, you know, writers that didn't know the books particularly well that just wanted to tell a really intense um, you know, Iceman story or a really intense uh, Gambit story. Mm-hmm. And that's more the way I was and the way my two main writers were. We were just we were looking for uh, uh, intense character stories, and if there happened to be one that we could adapt, like the Phoenix Saga, great, or you know, Days of Future Past, great. But in general, um, I was looking at, at, at the like half-page premise, you know, does the story grab me for this character or does it not? And sometimes it had almost nothing to do with the books. We just picked little bits and pieces from them to fill things out. And sometimes it was a direct adaptation that one of the writers would have taken from one of the books. And I didn't, I, I wasn't even trying to keep track. <laughs> I, I was just trying to say, okay, we need uh, 10 good stories by the end of the week signed off on. Uh, they've sent in 45. I like these 16. I'll send these in with, you know, with my changes on them. And so what ended up being getting on the air was didn't have much to do with whether it was successful in the books or not. Those three exceptions, Days of Future Past and the two Phoenix stories, were very much calculated. We talked to Marvel about it, said, do you want to do this? Yes, let's do it. You know, modify them for TV, you know, make, you know, make the changes you need to make. But let's do these adaptations specifically. But that's, I think there were 59 total stories in the 76 half hours. And those were the only three that we sat down with Marvel and said, let's do these three adaptations. Everything else was kind of picking and choosing uh, what grabbed us at the time. And uh, so um, we, we wasn't a case of a, a different group of people might have started out with, say, their favorite 30 books and said, you know, how can, we, how can we make these fit on television? And that wasn't our case at all. It was, it was very much the reverse. It was, let's think of these as TV stories, and if we can use part of a book, great, and if we can't, we won't. Uh, for the, uh, you know, the legendary theme that you guys had played for the fourth season, and then it was a remix for the fifth season, was that yeah. your mm-hmm. first pick, or did you have many? <laughs> Well, let's, taking a step back, let us all give credit to the fellow who was the actual composer of that piece, Ron Wasserman. Who didn't get credit on, online because there's an awful lot of money in music rights, and so uh, people from Saban Entertainment uh, took music credit for that and have made all the money off of it over the years. He is also the gentleman who gave us the Power Rangers theme song. One guy. Oh, my Ron God. <laughs> Yeah. And he and he gets and he gets no residual payments for either one. Yeah, Sucks. the folks who get the credit for it do, but he doesn't. But he was a work for hire, like so many of us were, working week for week, week to week, um, for Saban, and was ta- as a composer and was tasked with coming up with, you know, a theme, these different theme songs. And it's one of those things. He's work for hire. He will get paid the exact same amount with over the course of the forty-hour work week, whether he's churned out. One song, whether he's turned out 60 songs, you know, that's just how the, the way it works. And he churned out some stuff for X-Men, and, um, nah, not right. 
get to more, some more, some more, and by the end of it, this was like, what, Eric, the 20th, 30th yeah, version yeah, of something? Yeah, that, some things went very quickly, like the, the, the visuals in the opening. That was Larry Houston and Will Mineo, like, two drafts, and they were done over, like, over a long weekend, hmm. which is pretty amazing, because it works so well. But the, but the, the music, the opening music, um, that was one of the few things that we just really worked and worked and worked and worked on. People had been pitching other stuff. They'd been pitching uh, sing-songy stuff, you know, Spider-Man, Spider-Man does whatever, Spider-Kit, whatever. Uh, and all sorts of various things. We settled on this, and then they pushed it and pushed it. And he had, had to do like 20 or 25 takes on this adding more and more and more layers to it, and it was just driving me crazy. But finally it got to where it was intense enough that we all thought, yeah, that's X-Men stuff. And we've got Sidney Iwater to thank a lot for that. He was the hands-on guy at Fox, and he was the one that just had envisioned, I mean, he's the guy, man, he was there supervising, hands-on supervising us, Batman, Spider-Man, The Tick. You know, all those things were him staying up till four in the morning, making sure everything was the way that he wanted it for Fox. So he had, he had said, well, uh, you know, Batman works with the Danny Elfman stuff. That's kind of like, you know, slow jazz. But what we need for X-Men is a garage band. And we need that kind of pace and speed because we're cheap and dirty and, and, and we need a, a song that sounds like that. And so to his credit and Will's credit, they kept, I wasn't involved in it, um, but they kept after him, I, I bet, for three or four weeks, making him do that over and over and over till it was the, the song that you get now. So that was not by chance. It was hard work. And in regards to the theme song, the theme song is so iconic that a lot of people like myself included, whenever Marvel Studios decides to revamp the uh, X-Men, bringing them into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I want to hear an orchestral version of that oh. theme song. Oh, you're not alone. You are not alone. <laughs> I mean, I got goosebumps when I heard Spidey 67 in Homecoming. So yeah. whenever it happens, whenever we see it, I want to hear da na 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 just because. Oh, and there's actually, if you go on iTunes and Spotify, this uh, composer by the name of George Shaw, he ended up doing his own orchestral version of the X-Men theme song. And yeah, <laughs> it's really impressive. It sounds oh, like it's mo- it's definitely movie theater worthy. It's just the overall sound, full-bodied sound of it. Yeah, and he did that all on just on the synthesizer. It was just him on a synthesizer. No, no musicians, just him. Yeah, so so that was pretty, you know, pretty incredible. Yep. What what he pulled off, and you know, you have, have him to thank for it because everyone on the planet knows. You know, if anyone sees X Men on a T-shirt we've got, or you know, when if they meet us at a con, we hear that from everyone because it's in their heads. Forever. It was my ringtone for a while, too, for crying out oh, loud. Oh, it's my ringtone now. <laughs> <laughs> now, on the topic, by the way, of the uh, MCU, our final listener question comes from Charles uh, Perallo. We live in a post-Endgame world, but also one where X-Men just joined the MCU. If you could give a hypothetical way to introduce them into that universe, what uh, the X-Men, what would it be? Oh, that's, that's, that's mm. interesting, because I... Because you've got a few secondary people, too, like Deadpool, that are part of the X-Men universe, but not the MCU, but now they are. So um, it's, it's difficult. I was, you know, I, we, we had a, a small crossover with Spider-Man. We did a couple episodes on TV that I got to help with the dialogue on. And it's, it is an adjustment to, to shift 
groups to shift universes. Because mm-hmm. yeah. there's a whole feeling, like after the Josh Whedon uh, Avengers that worked so well, and, okay, you've established this world, and who these people are, and what, you know, what they're afraid of, and, you know, who they work for. And it's almost like, you know, I think it's going to be hard. I think it's going to be hard to, to, meet, to, to get the two to overlap properly. Um, and uh, I don't envy the people that, that try to figure it out, but I, I really don't, I don't have an answer because the, the, they, they, the tones, the, the, the worlds feel different to me. And I and I can't tell you why. It's almost like X Men is more is is more uh, I don't know human sized, and the Avengers are more galactic sized. And even though X Men fights through space and fights some pretty big you know uh, adversaries, it's more to me. It was always more interesting how they integrate with people. Mm-hmm. And I don't think how I don't think you care about how the Avengers integrate with other people. I think you care about if they're going to save the planet or not. Um, so I just to, I don't uh, envy Kevin Feige and all the people that are that are, are asking this. I'm sure brainstorming this question right now. How do you make it happen? And I uh, I certainly don't have an answer. From a fan perspective, I've wanted to see maybe them do kind of like what they did with the Avengers, where you end up introducing characters through other movies, and then eventually it leads up to their own film, you know, all together. Like, Wolverine could easily be done, you know, introduced uh, through like an Alpha Flight movie, where they end up having to fight maybe uh, Bruce Banner on the run, and it leads to finally seeing that on the big screen. Yeah, Ooh, that'd be fun. That would, that would work, and you're right, they, they, they were so smart to do bits and pieces of the Avengers and build to that, and then when you threw the, finally threw them all together, um, and, I mean, and there was a reason for it. It's they found, and I don't know how you know how they quite managed it. Uh, we, we had a challenge of when when X Men was over. One of the things we did after that, there was a '90s Avengers TV show, and it just it did not work in all the ways that X Men worked. It did not work, and one of the problems was is that the Avengers feel like they make sense like these incredibly powerful individuals peppered across the globe each with their own lives and they're pulled together in an emergency and then they separate again and which is different from a bunch of x-men living in a mansion together and being a dysfunctional family so i yeah but i think you're right if you could do a Gambit movie, which we've been talking about doing forever, and then a Storm movie mm-hmm. with maybe some history of Africa, and then a Wolverine movie in in Canada, and then have them su- then have something big enough that threw them in with the remaining Avengers who haven't died yet, unless we're bringing Iron Man back. I don't know, but mm-hmm. but yeah, you're right. Uh, starting at piecemeal like that would be would seem to be the way to to to, to try to make it palatable. And by the way, you had mentioned uh, earlier that you guys had worked on the uh, Avengers animated series, I believe, 98, 99. Yeah. I mean, part of, you know, maybe part of why it didn't work that well also is because there was no Moon Knight. I mean, you know, we're, we're loony for Mooney over here, you know? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, that... Speak for yourself. In one of the early meetings. Oh, okay, the Avengers. Well, that'll be interesting. So we'll have... Ford, Ford, Captain America, America and, and I, the Hulk, and Iron Man, and mm, they all just looked at us and said, "No, no, no." no. Yeah, everyone so, we're calling out, they're going, "No, no, no." We're saving that one. We're, we're saving, saving that, that one. Saving that one for their own show. We're saving that one for their own show. So, so wait a minute. What? Is, so it's the Ant Man and Wasp show. <laughs> and literally, they said, and they nodded, and they said, "Oh yeah, they'll be great. They'll be great as leads." 
And it just, we didn't know, you know, we didn't know what to do with that, saying, well, we're calling them the Avengers, but the top five or six of them can't participate and we can't make reference to them. What the heck are we supposed to do? And we, you know, we we had some of the same writers and same artists working on the show. It just, it, it was wrong. It was, it just showed how if you've got the wrong executives making the decisions like that, uh, there's just kind of no way around it. Captain America, can you come out to play? No, my mom said I can't. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think Jubilee said it best in four words. I blow stuff up. <laughs> there, you know what I wanted to say too is one other point uh, when when uh, Rogue and Beast have a little interchange and they, you know the injection of humor and I think maybe underneath that there might be a little dig when Rogue says what makes us like we are and Beast says gamma rays pollution ozone depletion television yeah 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 yeah, yeah. a little self-referential there you know yeah, didn't go unnoticed yeah. by me anyway. And one of the little <laughs> one of the little things, by the way, for our show, uh, Eddie actually has never really seen much of the uh, X Men animated series, I believe, until fairly recently, right, Eddie? Correct. Oh. Yes. And yes. this is his introduction because I built it up to him like, you have to watch this, you have to watch this, and he's like, I will when I have the time. No, you really didn't say that, but you know, just the idea of this. And when I ended up coming into the studio today, I walk up to him, I go, "So did you start watching?" He goes, "I watched three episodes, and I'm really liking it." So. It's you know you guys definitely sold him on it, which is great. Well, let, let me put this out there, uh, just so we can. It was an animated show in the 1990s, and it was for kids on Saturday morning. But we all put our best efforts into it, and there are things that are painfully dated. There's a lot of stuff that there wasn't the money to correct or fix, or even do right the first time. But uh, here we are, 25, 30 years later, still talking about it fondly. And um, I will, Eric's heard this a thousand times, I am convinced that X-Men, the animated series, you had your 30 years of books before, and now you got your billion-dollar film franchise, including Iron Man and Captain America and Thor and all those. X-Men was the bridge. If it weren't for the animated series, Marvel wouldn't have rolled the dice in 2000 on the X-Men movies, and the success of those movies allowed Marvel to pursue the rest of the Avengers characters. I mean, expand their universe. Iron Man, it's hard to remember, Iron Man was a real risk. Yeah, 2007. Because he was not. We can say, well, who didn't know Iron Man? Well... A lot of people. Yeah. And uh, so for them to have the... the, For that, for the X-Men to have led to the success of that and then allow them to make the films like Iron Man and Thor and all those films, you know, uh, I'm, I'm convinced... Good old X Men TAS was the bridge. Now you guys, I think you said earlier, are on uh, the the Comic Con tour. You're on this, making the circuit. Where uh, where are we finding you nowadays? Good question. We will for sure be in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in August. I hear it's lovely in Albuquerque, New <laughs> Mexico, in August. Hi, Bugs Bunny well, recommends yeah, it. I was going to make that uh, reference, in, Eddie. In August for a New Mexico Comic Fest, then. And Eric, just this morning, you may have been firming up plans to make an appearance at uh, San Diego Comic Con in right. July. Yeah, we got to go to San Diego Comic Con a lot because we're fairly close for about a two-hour drive, and and they just we just asked to be on a on a on an '80s comic panel. We're not not we've done X Men panels there before uh, this year. We're not doing we're not choosing to do one there, but. Uh, 
it's actually thinned out a little bit. We, we can't say what it is, but we're about to get busy on a project with Marvel. Thank you uh, for, for Disney for bringing Marvel and Fox together so that they can maybe do something more with the X-Men. Uh, it's it's not a new TV show, sorry, but uh, we do have some work ahead of us. So we've we've cut back on on con appearances, but we will be there in uh, I think I'll in, in at San Diego Saturday morning doing a an eighties co- uh, cartoon panel, and then then the bunch of us with with Larry Houston, the art director, and uh, and another writer, Stephanie Matheson, and a couple three of the cast are all going to be in Albuquerque in, in August. You know, Rogue just said yes, and, and so, so they're, that, they're still filling that, that panel out, but that'll, that'll be fun for us. Mm-hmm. Is there any possibility you guys would be considering doing New York Comic Con in October? We would love to. Um, hey, New York Comic Con. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Send, a, yeah. Send us a contract, please. Or, or just, hey, reach out to us. We'll yeah. reach right back. Yeah, we're, we are seriously talking. If uh, We're talking about the, for a year from October and about, about something for that. So that we have not been to New York yet, been uh, some really nice places. But, but yeah, that's on our bucket list, and we're hoping that next year we'll have uh, a, a good another a good excuse to be there. So keep yeah. your fingers crossed. Yeah, so that's we've been, been talking about that, but yeah, not sadly, sadly not. Unless again, unless we get that magic phone call, we're, we'll we'll pack our bags. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Peter's fingers were crossed too. They were. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. I think whatever it is that you wind up, and you said you couldn't talk too much, but I think whatever it is, it's going to be nothing short of very, very good. Or except you could have made the pun, Eddie. You had one chance. <laughs> what? Excellent? Exceptional? Uh, exquisite? Exceptional. Exciting? Yeah. Extraordinary? How many more do you want, Peter? Come on now. Come on, kid. Come on. I'll give you about five right now. Jeez. Like like Lucy said to what's his name? Linus. I'll give you five good reasons. One, two, three, four, five. Wait Those are good reasons. That's a fist. Yes. That's <laughs> How's that for you? Yeah. Eric, All right, Julia. It was an absolute pleasure having you guys on. And again, well, I have said it again, but you guys are more than welcome to appear on our fine program anytime you'd like. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate that. Yeah, we had a great time. I got to go back into the DVDs and, and the book. <laughs> and the social media, I believe, for everything is at X Men T A S, correct? That's a, yes. Across the board, we kind of got to jump on that. So, yeah, you can find us on Twitter. You can find us on Instagram. Uh, and uh, we have a website up. And uh, we can't wait to link to this podcast when you guys have that up. So that'll be great. Absolutely. But before we go, real quick, one mini thing. Which do you guys prefer calling it? X-Men TAS, X-Men the Animated Series, or X-Men 92? Because there's, like, so many different versions to choose from. There are. There are. And the, the challenge was the show itself at one point it was called X-Men Adventures, but that, that didn't make it past uh, a first round of things. So, it's, so it being called X-Men, it's like, well, there's the comics, there's the movies, you know, X-Men what? So with a nod to uh, Star Trek, the original series, as they're calling that, like uh, X-Men the Animated Series or X-Men TAS. When I hear X-Men 92, I tend to think of the comic book series that came out. Yeah. Um, mm. But... You know, uh, any anything as long as folks are all talking about the same thing. <laughs> when I do the year, I always think of Batman '66 with Adam West. So that's the, the first immediate uh, nothing wrong thing. with thinking about that. Absolutely, that's good. That's good. That was fun. Again, Julia and Eric Leewald, thank you very much for what you've done and uh, to talking to us. And we uh, wish you nothing but the best in the future. 
too. Thanks Thank for having you. us. We really appreciate it. So once again, major thank you to Eric and Julia Leewall for being on the program today. Major, major. Major ma- ground control. Major Tom. Okay, fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's like our most half-assed song lyric reference for the show today. Uh, well, they have to start somewhere, and they, where, where they go from there could be down, could be... Well, now that all the children are growing up, Eddie. Wow, back to the earlier yes. one. Yes, mm-hmm. because games people play. You take them where you leave them. Things that they said, hard to write. Eddie, if I promised you the moon and the stars, would you believe me? Games people play. In the, in the middle, middle of, the, of night. the night. In the middle of the night. Anyway. So that's a segue now. Wow. And not the thing that Paul Blart wrote in <laughs> Mall Cop. <laughs> your own note was almost like Paul Blart is your like arch nemesis and I just enjoyed that so much <laughs> so anyway Chris it was a pleasure having you on for this episode and you're going to also be on a previous episode which we're about to record in a little bit we, it's those confusing timelines much Let's like in the do X-Men the time universe. warp again yes mm-hmm. and that's just a jump to the left Kitty come in for the Marvelous I'm Peter Melnick I'm Chris Mirror. And I'm Eddie Wilson. Excelsior! <laughs> <laughs>